I'm Lauren DeYoung-Shulman, and you're listening to the Women in NatSec podcast miniseries on the national security workforce. Why is it the people behind the policy are so often an afterthought in national security strategy? What has to change to bridge today's national security talent with tomorrow's challenges? Tune in for big and small ideas from experts across the field. So I'm here with Emma Moore as part of our National Security Human Capital mini-series and the Women in National Security podcast. Uh, she is a research assistant with the Military Veterans and Society program here at the Center for a New American Security. And I am really excited to have somebody who has both studied these issues professionally, both from the perspective of civilian veterans and military, but also somebody who's experiencing a lot of the issues related to the national security workforce herself as a uh, you know fairly new entrant into this field. So Emma, thank you so much for joining. I'm happy to be here. So the first question I have is, I'm asking everyone, when is the first moment that you really recognized that you were part of the national security field or that you knew you really wanted to make a career of this? Mine was kind of a slow slide from undergraduate in international relations to realizing I really wanted to work on national security. Brown University is more focused on foreign policy and um, the human rights focus rather than security and military specifically. So it was through some courses, personal relationships, and then my own self-learning that I realized I wanted to be more directly involved in military policy. But it took about 15 months. Okay, well now, once you kind of made that transition and you have been working in this field in a different, couple different capacities for a while, what is it that you think is so great about the national security workforce? I think a lot of people, at least at my level, are incredibly hungry, and it follows through from junior staff to more senior staff, and my experience is that people really want to make a difference, and despite all the bureaucratic challenges, they stick to it, and they, they try to learn more, and they try to take on different positions when they can do that, and I'm thrilled to be part of that group, and it's both filled with frustrations as well as uh, exciting opportunities. I mean, this is one of the things that I'm always struck by. The national security field makes it, in some ways, as difficult as humanly possible to actually join the uh, join the field as a career, particularly in government, but not only in government, and not only because it's screening out for talent or merit, but also just because it's, you know, frankly, a pain in the ass to get through some of the hoops in order to get in. And yet, we have still too many applicants for all the jobs that we put out there. There are still you know, thousands and thousands of students that go through the grad school or undergraduate process to get into this field, and uh, many who continue to kind of knock at that door for a long period of time. Um, what is it you think is some of the greatest challenges right now that the national security workforce is experiencing, both in terms of getting the right kind of talent that we need into government or an into this broader field to support the national security challenges of the future or in ha- having the people who are the most talented you know get get into the sort of positions that make the most sense for them i think there are two main issues part is hiring into government be it uh, as a civilian or as somebody who's trying to enter into the, the military there's a huge barrier to entry on both of those and that's partially due to the clearance system process, it's partially due to government hiring, but it means that it's very hard to get qualified people into government, and I see that both as somebody 
working on the issues and also seeing my friends struggle and having to go through contractors in order to work on the issues on the policy side that they really want to make a difference on. And then similarly on the military side, which is clearly my my issue set, the barrier to entry in part is due to the high level of qualifications you have to have to enter the military, but also the fact that you have to give up your life to for six months as a reservist or just for four to eight years as active duty. And the there are some, we want qualified individuals, but it's currently incredibly hard to enter. And then in terms of, you've said, there are so many applicants to a lot of jobs and it's it's a task to make sure you align fit with qualifications and part i think is a fault of the employers who want to get the most qualified individuals and therefore in some cases write their postings either too broadly or too narrowly and then have to go back to the drawing board and that means that you get a ton of people applying or people who aren't going to ultimately be the right fit and that kind of does a disservice to everybody involved. So when you were in either undergrad or graduate school and there's always a million career panels that come by of people who've worked in the Department of Defense or the State Department or intelligence community or elsewhere and they're they're attempting to subtly or not so subtly recruit you into that field if they or and sometimes the military as well if they were really honest and direct about getting in and what it's like to be there, what is it you wish they may have said more clearly or directly um, when when you were at that stage in your education? I'm a bit of an oddball on that because my graduate degree was in London and mm-hmm. therefore oh, there were totally no, different environment. Yeah, no real government, U.S. government representatives on on that side of the Atlantic, but. One thing I would have appreciated when I've looked at positions on the Hill, say, is that hiring is very political in ways that might be unexpected. It's not just where you're from and what qualifications you have. It's also what Congress people want to be front-facing, um, and that might be seen as overly political, And um, but it changes day-to-day and kind of what the representatives want to show to their constituents and to the nation and if they could be more upfront about that or if you can read between the lines that would be more helpful because that would then reduce the amount of time you you put in applying for jobs that you ultimately never get. So you spend your current job um, researching ways for the military, civilians, and veterans to both uh, be able to better support their country, but also have the country better be able to support them in a lot of the articulated tasks of national security. And I know you must have a million ideas of how to support or reform or uh, empower this field in ways that other folks uh, are not necessarily exposed to. But if you could articulate a couple of either you know really big ones or smaller ones that may help advance the national security profession in a way, what would those be? I have two main ideas that mostly deal with military recruitment and but also deal with supporting kind of the civil military relationship, one of which is that the military services need to comprehensively review the recruiting process. Mm-hmm. Right now the Army is focusing on the fact that they are on social media platforms and they're pushing into 20 urban areas in order to broaden their recruitment base, but that's just um, a new flavor on an old process. Fundamentally, it remains that they put more money and more recruiters on the ground in order to have maybe less face-to-face time 
given that they're on social media platforms, but it's more interactions with the youth population. And there are a couple of ways they could challenge themselves to be a bit more flexible or more innovative in in these processes, part of which they've been discussing kind of target audience marketing and analysis to really hit um, subpopulations that they want to recruit a little bit more strongly and to tailor their message to those populations. I have been unimpressed by new recruiting advertisements, although the Navy has done some more interesting outreach targeting parents, grandparents, what they call influencers, in order to move the needle on supporting youth populations who want to serve. However, the military could also stand up recruiters who are more specialized in who they're recruiting into special fields. The Navy does this with the submarine force, for example, or they could move more strongly to online recruitment. We've seen some partner militaries do this. Australia, for example, has their entire recruiting online. Oh, wow. And that, therefore, makes it much shorter and easier of a process rather than trying to track down the recruiter for your specific area, which I can tell you is no easy task. So there are recruitment into the military itself is bit arcane and very slow and streamlining some of those processes, but also really overhauling them could move us more into the 21st century, whereas currently the military is just waking up to some changes in terms of personal interaction. So, but before you go on further on that, I, I want to have you articulate a little more specifically. So obviously I think there's merit in improving the recruitment system overall, if only to meet that challenge that you had about like being in a 21st century organization, you should be actually actually be recruiting as though you are. But what is the what are the other problems can that solve? Is it that you believe that there should be wider participation of the American people in the armed forces and having improved recruitment might assist with that? Is it that um, by, by dint of the fact that our recruitment is frankly so antiquated and old fashioned that we are uh, you know, keeping ourselves away from talents we might otherwise get access to, or, or are, there, are there other articulated reasons that you think that we should really be focusing on improving that system? Certainly all of the above. We are currently focused as uh, kind of policy wonks on this great power competition, and the, let's say, minimal success of the past 18, 19 years of war have shown that it never hurts to have qualified individuals doing a job, but especially looking towards a different kind of conflict and a new way of war, either gray zone or more cyber focused, the the military will need to have individuals with specialized skills who are qualified for those positions. Part of the the burden then is going to be finding people who have those skills prior to entry into the military, although the military is currently trying to train up people for those jobs. Mm -hmm. So it's partially broadening the recruitment base just so you have more interest in service and therefore more people applying who might have a variety of skills that you then need given any sort of conflict. And it's also uh, broadening the burden of conflict, and that's a a term that's supposed to mean that right now we have a small number of people who serve in the military and a small number of veterans, and we've kind of shrunk that population, which means that most of society doesn't understand what it is to go to war, and 
that can impact your voting, who you want in representing you in Congress, who then votes on foreign policy. And while it's a little bit more nebulous, I do believe that when we have a population distanced from its war fighters, it it does a disservice to kind of our American ideals and, and democracy. Okay, I think I cut you off from one idea, and I believe you had another that you wanted to pitch as well. Well, it, it directly informs the first yep. one. In terms of recruitment and broadening recruitment, one big idea I'd put out there is to institute a gap year program mm-hmm. in the military to say 12, maybe even 15 months for people who have graduated high school or maybe even college, they have the benefit of or opportunity to go into the military for a short term, kind of a try before you buy system mm-hmm. that they wouldn't necessarily get VA benefits or GI Bill, but they'd be they'd be paid for their service. They'd be able to see what the military was like, trained to a certain level, and that would be a way for the military to plus up certain units, but also to to get people interested and involved without trying to commit them to four to eight years of service. And um, the Australian Army has also instituted a gap year program, Mm -hmm. and they've had a 40 to 50% success rate of people who stick around after that year. So, yeah, they've they've determined that that's worth the upfront investment of training people and keeping them for a year. And for those who don't even stick around afterwards, they would go back into society and maybe they would work with – the military in a professional sense, they could be working in uh, national security themselves and they would at least have a toolkit and understanding of how the military functions and chain of command decision making to then work more comprehensively and knowledgeably with the military. Yeah, I think there's a couple of European countries, uh, I mean there's lots of countries around the world that have a similar system of uh, shorter term service opportunity that then gives the country access to a broader population of people that have been trained in, you know, EMT skills or who might be ready to sit in disaster assistance or other things that might have broader applications than purely military in nature. What is it you think that prevents us from pursuing policies like that right now, which as you articulate would have a lot of potential benefits, some definite upfront costs, but a lot of potential benefits solving some of the both uh, recruitment challenges we see, but also some of the the, the civil relations challenges that you have uh, uh, studied and written about so thoroughly. I think change is hard. Yep. And in a bureaucracy as large as our military, it can almost seem more daunting because of the number of personnel shifts that would need to occur to implement a gap year program or something of that ilk. However, at the same time, the benefit of size means that it will ultimately be less of a burden to actually do so as I see it Mm -hmm. you know these people can slot into existing basic training companies and and go through with people who will be staying for longer periods of service um, and they'll be able to be more closely embedded with active duty or reservists because our military is pretty sizable so it could be just We've had an all-volunteer force since the 70s, and a lot of people see it having worked. We haven't truly lost a war, although I know that can be disputed, but (laughs) we've been pretty successful as a military, and there is mentality in a lot of places that the way we've always done it has proven to be successful, and therefore why change what's working. So, But it doesn't seem to... We can still think outside the box. 
What are some of the assumptions you think that the military, and maybe you can, um, if there's a specific service that has these challenges, you can articulate that, but, but some assumptions that the military is making about recruitment, both current and future, that are problematic or may result in them net not getting the force in terms of quality or size that they want, or, or if there's any other things that you see as problematic in terms of what they are presuming about how recruitment will go on in the future. The Army especially has been the branch that struggles with recruitment. The other services struggle more in terms of specific jobs. The Air Force is known to have a pilot shortage. Mm-hmm. The Navy has some cyclic job shortages. But the, the Army struggles when the economy is strong. And that, in my mind, has been used as an excuse to why uh, recruitment has lacked in certain years but been successful in others and seems to be an ongoing reason for why they don't need to have comprehensive recruiting change, be it a gap year or reviewing their process writ large. The economy will always vastly and the Army will likely always follow to some degree, but that doesn't seem to prohibit the ability to set up processes that might be able to respond to a strong economy a little bit better or to otherwise improve recruitment. Um, uh, looking down the pipeline into you know the next 15 years, the military, I think, will face a much more a, a much bigger challenge recruiting at the levels it wants to because it's been able to, to some degree, rely on being at war as a nation, patriotic mm-hmm. urges, the the children of service members who serve at much higher rates than other civilians. And that's a very that's a diminishing population in part because our the size of our military is shrinking and so is the number of veterans in the, the country, which are also huge boons to recruitment. So as those populations shrink and as the the pull of a country at war also diminishes, there will be a, a huge challenge to actually getting qualified people in the door. There's also um, some narrow segments of uh, prior service or current service uh, parents who are now saying that they would not, a higher number of them are saying that they would not recommend that their son or daughter serve in a future uh serve in a future military. Um, I have seen that being a little bit more prevalent in the Marine Corps, particularly for women. But it's it's going to be an interesting dynamic for this current military to consider after 17 years at war whether this ongoing prevalency of military families and people who have military connections to serve the military will continue, given that the experience of those over the last 20 years has been vastly different, different than their parents and the parents before them. Um, Well, Emma, thank you so much for articulating a a demand signal for a fundamentally different way of recruiting and thinking through how we can expose, um, you know, current young people to the opportunity of military service, both for the benefit of the country, but the benefit of themselves. Uh, I hope to see you write about this more over the coming year, and uh, we look forward to talking to you further. Thanks so much.